Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. Cocktail bartenders uh, like to talk, and they like to be in the media. So um, it's very easy to approach them and interview them. But the old guard, the old-style bartenders who came up in the late 20th century, that is not their style. Someone once told me that in the old days, the only time a bartender ever got his name in the news was if he was arrested. This is Taste. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Robert Simonson writes about cocktails, spirits, bars, and bartenders for the New York Times, and is the creator and author of the Substack newsletter, The Mix with Robert Simonson. On this episode, we talk about his terrific new book, The Encyclopedia of Cocktails, The People, Bars, and Drinks, with more than 100 recipes. The book is absolutely amazing. It covers the world of modern drinking, the people, places, and the watering holes without being dry or earnest. Simonson cuts to the heart of the past 100 years of the cocktail, and in this episode, we go over many of the entries and also dive into Robert's history in covering the scene for nearly 20 years. This is such a great episode, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Robert Simonson, this is Tace. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm I'm great. I'm better because I have your book. <laughs> That's it, nice. It's just the Encyclopedia of Cocktail. I love it. It's really fantastic. It's such a, a impressive work, and it's just really fun to read. And I want to just first off just get a sense, what's the origin of this book? Because it's very unique because it, it isn't a recipe book. It's the A to Z of cocktails, both modern and going back. And it's written with a flow and with a sensibility of like knowing and knowing the right people to write about, the right people to not write about. You just did such a nice job, Robert. Oh, thanks very much. Uh, you're right. It's, uh, it is called the Encyclopedia of Cocktails, but it's not just cocktails. Um, I decided early on that an encyclopedia that approached the topic of cocktails would also have to include entries on bars and on bartenders and on cocktail-making techniques, things like that. So it's a mix of all that. There are something over 300 entries, all told. Wow, 300. And, you know, I was going through the bars alone, and I was, like, ticking off the ones I've been to. This is not a name drop. This is just to say... Like Amori Maro, American Bar, Savoy, Angel Share, Ben Mins, um, Boadas, Booker Index, Clover Club, Clyde Common. Like, yeah, that's you, just A, B, and C. That's just A, B, and C, and you're, you're covering <laughs> these places. And I think you're tuning in because you like our show, but also you might enjoy cocktails. And, Robert, you're like at the center of gravity for cocktails. <laughs> I don't know about that, but I have been writing about cocktails for 17 years, so I am pretty uh, soaked in that culture. How do you decide then— well, first off, the project, like what, what's the origin? Is it, did you just realize you needed to call, like there was a lot of like white space in cocktail writing. You needed to call out a lot of people because you really do, you write beautifully, you write essays. There's some of them that are quite lengthy. The Sasha Petrosky entry is, is a couple pages, beautiful mm-hmm. writing there. Yeah, yeah, that's one of the longest ones. This was actually my first cocktail book. Um, it's my seventh cocktail book, but it's the first 
That was not my idea. Okay. Um, this came to me during the uh, early days of COVID in 2020, and I got an email from uh, the publisher of 10 Speed Press, uh, Aaron Wenner, and it was his idea, and uh, the gist of it was, uh, do you want to write an encyclopedia of cocktails? Um, <laughs> and I thought to myself for a while, and I thought, do I? Do I? And so then I decided that I, 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 I did. I mean, uh, it was definitely a book of the moment because it was COVID, and we were all at home. We were all quarantining. I had a lot of time on my hands. Yeah. Um, and if there was any time that was right for me to write a whole encyclopedia, it was that time. So I signed in. I got a little more time than I usually get with my books to write this. I think it took about two years mm -hmm. to put it all together. Um, but I'm glad I did it. Yeah, me too. And I, I really dug into the book last yesterday when I was prepping for this interview and I, I had to write Aaron a quick note and just say, this book is wonderful and it makes sense. He he thought of it and you collaborated on it because it is um, there's choices that you make. And I want to go over some of the specific entries that really struck me. But this is just a, a real a real sliver of of what you're writing about. Um, but first, you know, Robert, is there a spreadsheet? Is there a list? Is there a Google Doc? How are you deciding? And like, how did you know when to stop? Because, you know, I don't know how many entries you, you can tell me, but it, there's obviously a, a time you need to like say this is it. Yes. Um, when it first started, uh, they asked me to uh, send a sample list of about like 200 things that would be in the book. And quite frankly, I've been writing about this stuff for so long, that did not take very long. It look, took all of one hour because I knew <laughs> I knew what had to be in the book, what cocktails had to be in there, what bartenders and bars. And then after that, you know, the last 100 was just sort of um, elective, you know, just selecting what I wanted to be in the book, what I wanted to include. And if you look through it, there are some quirky choices. And I'm sure some people will say, well, why isn't this person in the book or why isn't that cocktail in the book? Well, that's because it's my book. Love it, Robert. I love that stance. And I feel like you're probably going to get some 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 notes, not angry because like it's, it would be weird to call you out, but like probably some questions like why wasn't this person? In? Have you gotten those already once the galleys are out? No, no, not yet. I'm sure that will come hopefully it won't. Uh, but uh, they, they told me how long the book would be and yeah. it would be longer than most of my other books. But I kept adding entries. We were adding entries up until the book going to press. You I know, love it. What I, was the I last believe, one? <laughs> well, there was, this is funny. Uh, my editor on this book is Kim Keller. Yep. Kim's great. Love that. And late in the process, she actually came to me and she said, do you realize that there actually is not an entry for cocktail in this book? And I said, no, <gasps> I left that out. So you were it was intentional because it was no, like, no, I, oh. I, I it, it just was staring me in the face. It was the Encyclopedia of Cocktails. Never occurred to me that there should be an entry called Cocktail. OK, so two comments on that. First, you have an entry for Cocktail Writer. Yes. Which I think is hilarious. Yes. Paraphrase that for us. Um, so Cocktail Writer is a kind of writer that didn't exist 20 years ago. And right. now there are quite a few. There are dozens that make a living at this and are rather prominent. I was trying to think how to handle that. Um I didn't think I could give all the prominent cocktail writers their own entry in the book yeah. because I'd run out of room and then some people get left out yeah. and they get offended. So I decided I'd do it as a category. And I do believe I touch upon most of the prominent yeah. ones out there. So, And it's a rather long entry. It is a long entry. I love it. It's, it's nice to like mention media. And the other is like where's the Robert Simonson entry? 
Well, I I wrote it. So, so that's what I thought. <laughs> I mean, I have a little bio in the back. I guess that's my entry. I thought maybe you would throw yourself in there and and you would like switch into the third. But I mean, it, yeah. I'm joking. But it's it's just a really fun read. And let me ask you this um, about cocktails: Is it possible to enjoy cocktails and not in, not drink alcohol? Do you mean enjoy reading about cocktails? We could say it that way. I mean, I mean, obviously, if you don't drink alcohol, you can't drink cocktails. But, That's I mean, right. is there a way to appreciate and understand and, and enjoy? And have you come across people who don't drink but are into cocktails? Uh, I have met people who do not drink anymore, and they are still curious about cocktails. They like the topic, and they like to talk about them. I'd like to think they could read this and find something interesting. It is a history book, after all. Um, some of the history is old, and some of the history is just in the last 20 years. And, of course, we have this new culture now where there are a lot of mocktails, a lot of non-alcoholic cocktails, and uh, bars and bartenders are making a concerted effort to include everybody under that tent so they can all have a good time in the bar. Yeah, it's a good point about the the, the N.A. cocktail, the, the mocktail, mm-hmm. um, and that's certainly using a lot of why, we, you know, a lot of the energy that, you know, around cocktails is put into those, why we love cocktails, you know, barware, glassware, presentation, the way it's written on the menu, um, being in a bar, the music, the all that stuff, that can be all done without alcohol. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, like, Stepping back, I used to edit you. I was an editor at Punch. Um, That's right. And I really enjoyed editing you. Um, you had really clean copy, which is obviously what editors love. But also, you had this wonderful series that I got to work on a few. And it really it dove into these old, like, legendary bartenders. And I wanted to get a sense um, with this series, you know, what draws you to the old timers in the industry? Yes, I forget whose idea that series was, but that was a lot of fun because I spend most of my time talking to young cocktail bartenders. Cocktail bartenders uh, like to talk and they like to be in the media. So um, it's very easy to approach them and interview them. But the old guard, the old style bartenders who came up in the late 20th century, um, that is not their style. They're not, that's not what they're used to. I think someone once told me that in the old days, the only time a bartender ever got its name in, his name in the news is if he was arrested. <laughs> right. um, and so they're, they're not used to that kind of thing. And so it was sometimes uh, difficult to approach these people and get them to sit down for a simple interview. And uh, if you interviewed them, their answers would sometimes be one word, two word, <laughs> right. one sentence. Uh, but uh, it was a lot of fun. You have to uh, admire um, the old skills that they have, the, the people skills. And also, once they get to warm up, you know, they have tons of old yarns and stories about, like, the way things were done back right. in the day. I remember, I mean, a couple that come to mind, you had a great talk with a bartender in, Mer- in uh, Hilton Head, South Carolina. What was that one like? Yeah, he had like a beach bar. Yeah. Um, and uh, so you would go to this particular beach. I think it was a public beach. Might have been private. Yeah. And, you, and he had like the thatched roof. It had this very antique aesthetic. Yeah. And he was known for the frozen drinks, very elaborate frozen drinks and mm-hmm. um, fruity and multiple colors. And um, I think there were like 100 or 200. Yeah, I remember um, it was a big menu. He yeah. even had a, a, a cocktail book, a self-published cocktail book. He gave me a copy. <laughs> oh, I was, wonderful. I was looking at these things like I, I'm never going to make any of these. It's yeah. just mind-bogglingly difficult, you know, for whatever <laughs> result it is. But um, there are people like that all over uh, the country. The question is just finding them. Um, it was like a piece of string I found in New York anyway. Once you found one, 
they'd say, well, you have to go talk to Jim, mm. you know, over at this steakhouse. Yeah. And then Jim would say, you have to go talk to Bob over at this hotel. And that's how it would happen. Oh, my gosh. There, a couple, was it 21 Club? Did you talk to somebody at 21 back in the day? Yeah, one of my favorite bartenders, uh, Tara, Tara Knight. Yep, she Tara now Knight. lives in Italy because um, that 21 Club is sadly no more. It's really sad that that went away. She made a great martini, and, of course, they were famous for Southside's. Um, yep. she, was, she was a rare old guard bartender who did have uh, opinions about the modern mixology. So that was interesting to have conversations with her. Did you talk to the bartender at Farrell's? At Farrell's, you mean the place in Brooklyn? Yeah, I feel like... No, I'm kind of scared of that place. I was going to say. <laughs> I mean, I'm scared of that place. Pat, Pat, do you know about Farrell's? Have you been to that place? I So I moved into that neighborhood a few years ago. I moved in December 2020. And uh, one thing I noticed right off the bat is they were the only bar in the neighborhood that was completely jam-packed inside <laughs> yeah. in December of 2020. Yeah, so during the COVID. That's Farrell's. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I mean, yeah, you can hear... Farrell's Bar and Grill... That's in Windsor Terrace, Windsor Brooklyn, Terrace. and I think it's been there about a century. If you if you remember the uh, the writer uh, Pete Hamill, yeah, of course, his his father used to take him there. Yep. Um, and I love uh, the old architecture inside. It's beautiful. It's got the mirrors and the wood paneling and everything. And uh, but it uh, it's definitely a neighborhood bar. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's for the old guard in the neighborhood, and you don't necessarily feel welcome if you go yeah. in there. It's like. A lot of firemen, a lot of cops, a lot kind of, of cops. things. Yeah, I've I've been there a few times. I think George Motes does a pop up for his burger, uh, his burger pop up there once in a while too. So oh, well, maybe that brings a yeah a different crowd. A different I remember crowd. during COVID. Remember when everyone had to serve food in order to keep yep, open? I remember that. And they they introduced a hot dog. It was like the first time I did. I did go back because I wanted to say, you know, I had a hot dog at Farrell's. At Farrell's. Yeah, they don't have it anymore. Um, we could talk about the old timers uh, all day and maybe love to have you back and talk about more. What is an old timer funeral like? Have you been to a funeral for an old time bartender? No, I haven't. I mean, I've written about, uh, sadly, a lot of the uh, old time bartenders from the Cocktail Revival have passed recently. Yeah. Um, and they're in different cities. So I don't know what that would be like. I would assume that there would be refreshments, sir. Yeah, and right? that it would be more like of a New Orleans type funeral, a yeah. kind of a celebration as opposed to something sad. Yeah. Well, I would, you know, maybe one day you could write about that. I would read, I would read your, your 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 take on a on a funeral for a, one of the the legends. Yes, that that would be very interesting. Um, let's talk about a few more entries. I, I want to mm-hmm. ask you about a few uh, specifics. Um, some bars, some bartenders, and one is uh, the book Julian's Recipes. I w- I'd love to get a sense. This is the second cocktail book ever to be written by a black bartender, and you you give it um, lots of lines, and that's great. Let's hear about this important work. Yeah, he's a very interesting guy, Julian Anderson. Um, he bartended for 60 years uh, at one place, uh, the Montana Club in Helena, Montana. Wow. Um, and I think it was like, you know, from the early 1900s until about 1960. He just, he never retired, and, and he was kind of a local legend. I found out about this book um, through a friend of mine named Martin Dudorov. Um, he uh, he has authored some cocktail apps, and he uh, is the librarian at Cocktail Kingdom, if you know that company, of the course. Barware Kingdom. Absolutely, the Uri Barware, I mean, yeah. the, the mixing glasses that everyone has. <laughs> yeah, he knows a lot about cocktail history, and he told me about this. And I was uh, unaware of it because we all know um, the cocktail book by Tom Bullock. 
the uh, St. Yep. Louis uh, bartender who wrote the first uh, cocktail book by a black bartender in America. And I think most of us assume that was the only one until recently. Uh, but he told me about this, and it happened a few years after Tom Bullock, and um, I actually managed to get a copy online. Wow. Uh, it's quite fascinating. It's a slim little volume, but of course, you know, very uh, socially significant in this industry. Absolutely. Let's talk about Tiki Tea, uh, a, rest, a bar in, in Los Angeles. Uh, it's on the east side. Uh, just got nominated or, or, or recognized by... Uh, by the Spirit Award. Spirit they Awards. gave it one of their timeless awards, which means it's a timeless bar. That's great. Let's talk about why do you, why do you include that bar? Oh, you have to include that. If you're going to include um, the classic tiki bars, um, that's one of the standard bears, the people that kept the torch going when tiki almost died in the late 20th century. It's a, have you ever been? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. small place. Yep. I don't know how many people you can fit Little in there. Little sweatshop, maybe, maybe 25, yeah. Yeah, and it's just got this wonderful atmosphere. It's got all the tchotchkes on the, on the ceiling, and if there's a certain drink that if you order it, everybody has to shout. I forget what they shout, but they shout something. There's something that's... Yeah, there, yeah. yeah. Um, and it's just wonderful. Uh, it, my brother used to live down the road, so I had plenty of opportunities yeah. to go there. Um, I, 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 I love those bars that where there's a continuum, where you can see how cocktails used to be made, what cocktail culture used to be, and what it is today. It's interesting you you, you write about Los Angeles. There's a lot of Los Angeles in this book. You know, said Moses is in the book and his, yeah. his empire building and, of course, the varnish and what was happening in, you know, the early to mid-2000s at the varnish and yeah. the revival there. Talk about said and, and Los Angeles as we know it as a cocktail real epicenter. Yeah, they didn't have much going on uh, about 20 years ago. Said Moses was this guy who had made a lot of money on Wall Street as a hedge fund guy. And then he started buying up properties in downtown L.A. and converting them into bars. And he's the guy who brought uh, Sasha Petrasky, who is the single most important person in the history of the cocktail revival, brought him out to L.A., to open a bar, and that was the varnish, mm-hmm. which they did with Eric Alperin. And that really kicked it off. I mean, said Moses opened many other bars, yeah. but the varnish was that was the milk and honey of L.A., yep. and it sparked everything. Famously in the back of a, of a roast beef restaurant. Yeah, they make a French dip, or cold French, French dip. dip. I of course, French dip. a French dip restaurant, like, hidden in the back when clandestine bars were certainly um, being recognized as a cool thing. Yeah, it's a speakeasy type Speakeasy. Yeah. More people. I think we should talk about more people. And you mentioned Sasha Petrosky, and, and you let's hear a little bit more about Sasha's legacy. Yeah, Sasha was a New York guy, and he uh, he wanted to open a uh, coffee shop, actually, but he ended up opening a, uh, a cocktail bar called Milk and Honey, just a small hole in the wall in a former tailor's shop on the Lower East Side. And he was uh, he brought back seriousness to cocktails. Cocktails were not taken seriously at the time. This was about 2000. And it was just a a small den. There was jazz music played. Uh, The bartenders, you know, dressed formally in suspenders, bow ties, whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, He he brought everything with a napkin. There was a glass of water with a slice of cucumber in it. And basically he was telling the world – we're putting the spotlight on cocktails and on cocktail bartending. This is a respectable trade, and this is um, a, uh, a respectable tradition in America. Cocktails are American. They go back more than 200 years. And nobody had done that before, um, and I think it opened a lot of people's eyes. And for that reason, I, he may have the longest entry in the book. He does. It's it's worth reading. It's beautifully written. Let me ask you, Robert, about... The pre-Petrosky era of cocktails, um, the 90s, I mean, the Sex in the City certainly was was roaring at that time, and we know about the Cosmo. 
But what was it like before this seriousness and this real culinary side of cocktails was being taken seriously, not just by media, but by consumers? Well, I kind of remember that. I mean, I wasn't writing about cocktails then, but I was always interested in cocktails. And I wanted to go to a place where I could have a good martini. You know, I mean, I wasn't interested in... uh, you know, having whatever, a woo-woo or a, pink uh, or, yeah. Well, yeah, or a pink drink or a kamikaze. So I would go to some of the places like Temple Bar, yep. which was open then, and then it closed and then it reopened again. You could get a good martini there. And then some of the hotel bars. But that was uh, the era of the teeny craze where they yep. put everything in Bemelman's a Bemelman's comes to mind. Yeah, you could still get the classic there. A lot of those classic places have closed. We still have Bevelman's, thank God, and that's in the book. But the Oak Room in the plaza is closed and probably closed for good. And they kept remodeling the Algonquin until it didn't mean anything anymore. Yeah, they washed it away. Yeah, so um, it was difficult to find those kind of cocktails. Um, The people who were practicing it seriously were few and far between. Really interesting to talk about pre and post Sasha Petrosky. Back to Bemelman's as an aside. Mm. Are you are you following like how Gen Z Bemelman's is and how? Yes, it's very annoying. Now it's hard to get in. <laughs> All the young people want to go. Literally, it used to be so easy to go. It was a beautiful place. You could always get a spot there, and you could take people from out of town and and, and really impress them. I, I've done. I did this many times, and and now it's like it's a list. Mm-hmm. You have to go in the afternoon if you just want to walk in, and that's what I do. Uh, my son recently turned twenty-one, <laughs> and this was actually his idea. He wanted to have his first legal cocktail at Bemelman's. Oh, great! So he got dressed up. He went there around three o'clock. He had never been there before. He didn't know what you can get and what you can't get. For some reason, he wanted to get a revolver cocktail for his first cocktail. Interesting. Which is a more recent creation from San Francisco, a whiskey drink. But they did not have that on the menu or know how to make that. So he ended up having a Vesper. Oh, he had a Vesper. That's close enough. Yeah, I I think it was pretty classy. Pretty classy. Uh, Is he going to follow in his father's footsteps? Is he writing about spirits and cocktails? No, he is a film studies major, but maybe he'll... uh, he did work for a documentary maker. If you remember Fourth Row Productions, they made a documentary called Hey Bartender 10 years ago. Oh, yeah, ago. sure, sure. He sure. was an intern up there. So who knows? He may end up in my business, but in a different way. Yeah, cool. Uh, a couple more names I want to go through. Harry Craddock, what does he mean to cocktail history? Harry Craddock's reputation, he was a bartender who worked at the uh, American Bar at the Savoy Hotel in London for many years. But really, his importance is in publishing the Savoy Cocktail Book in 1930. So 1930, a significant year, was prohibition in America. So he preserved all these recipes in one book. Um, when these recipes and this knowledge was being lost. So when all the young bartenders started making mixed drinks again in the 21st century, that was an important resource. A couple more names I want to bring up. One is Julie Reiner. I feel Julie uh, has uh, a modern history in New York, but maybe not so modern anymore. I mean, she's been in the industry for two decades. What does she mean to the industry? I think she means a lot. She's one of the leaders. Uh, she's one of my neighborhood bartenders. I live in Burham Hill, and she has Clover Club and Landa yeah. in the area. Uh, she first started bringing craft cocktails to the masses. I mean, Milk and Honey was this special little hole in the wall. You know, maybe, you know, 20 people could go in yeah. there. It's not mass market. Uh, you can't just walk in. Her place, Flatiron Lounge, you could just walk in and yeah. get, a, get a really good cocktail. And then she co-opened uh, Pegu Club after that. And uh, she is rare in this industry in that she still runs bars. Yeah. She's still a bar owner, and that is her business. A lot of other people have gone on to 
consultancies and brand ambassadorships and things like that. One more name from New York, Eben Freeman. I feel like uh, it's, I'd love to see that name. I think Eben meant a lot, especially for like, you know, 2005, 2010, around that era. Mm-hmm. What does he mean to the cocktail industry? He was a great innovator. He was, yeah. uh, for better or worse, I don't know if he likes the term or not, but the molecular mixology movement of yep. the aughts and the early 10s. But he was uh, smoking cocktails. He was creating cocktails in solid form. Um, he was uh, fat washing cocktails. A lot of the innovations that we take for granted now, um, he started. Yeah, I feel like at Taylor in particular, when he yes. had the cocktails there, uh, that restaurant and, and bar, uh, you know, it is a dated term molecular gastronomy, but certainly him and Sam Mason were doing some really cool things that I think to, still today you see some of the some of those on menus. I mean, you see like smoked cocktails. I mean, I feel like that was Absolutely. the first time I ever had a smoky cocktail was Evan Freeman. Yeah, very influential cocktail, even though it only last. I mean, uh, bar Taylor, yep. though, even though it only lasted two years. Yeah, it only lasted two years. I remember he had like bazooka, uh, a spirit, you know, flavored bazooka, mm-hmm. you know, bubble gum, and and. I don't know. I, I kind of, I, as again, I don't, I'm not in the cocktail world myself drinking anymore, but I think it could be really interesting to see an Eben Freeman pop onto the scene. Is there somebody doing that right now? Uh, doing what he did? Yeah, like that kind of like f- like flavor profile flipping and putting, you know, unique flavors into into cocktails. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people doing that right now. Uh, certain things happened with the advent of social media. Um, and people started pulling out the bells and whistles a lot yeah. more because you needed to get your cocktail on Instagram. And <laughs> if you're just going to put brown liquid in a glass with no garnish, you know, nobody's going to get excited about that. So I think things have become a little more extravagant again. Let me ask you this question as someone who writes a lot about bars. Is there a bar that you wish you could have been to in your life that you just have heard about, you've written about, you've researched, that you just obviously couldn't go there for a variety of reasons? Yeah, you, you asked that. I wondered about that. There's, there's a bar in Chicago that used to be there called Chapin and Gore. It was supposedly the most, the grandest uh, saloon in Chicago in right in the decades before Prohibition. And it also was a place where a bartender named Theodore Prue um, bartended. He's a little uh, uh, private obsession of mine. He wrote a, a he self-published a cocktail book in 1888, and he's in the book actually. So it would have been nice to go there. Of course, it would have been nice to go to Jerry Thomas's bar in Manhattan yeah. back in the day because there's lots of rumors of what it was like. But it would be nice to see all those Thomas Nast drawings on the wall. Yeah, and lots of fire, right? Yeah, lots of fire, and apparently he had pet mice that ran around. I don't know. I have a feeling that bar would have been crazy. It, it's like <laughs> it, it's like Mad Max. It sounds like like some kind of like future, like past future kind of land. You know? Yeah, yeah. I think he did whatever he wanted it's, to. He it, was a superstar. Absolutely. Um, I got to ask you about Wisconsin uh, sure. supper clubs. You're Always from, happy to talk. You're about from Wisconsin. Milwaukee. That's right. Uh, I went to college in Madison, Wisconsin. I love love the state. And you recently, I checked out on Instagram, went on a supper club crawl. Tell me about your fascination with Wisconsin supper clubs. Yeah, I was out there helping my brother. He runs an arts festival out there in Door County. So I, I pour cocktails for the guests. Mm. Um, and when I'm over there, I always make a point of going to at least one supper club. Uh, I got lucky this time. I went to four. Wow. Uh, wow. And uh, lately I've been feeling that I mean, a supper club, for those who don't know what it is, it's a very old-fashioned kind of restaurant. It's uh, like a roadhouse from back in the day when there may have been only one place you could go out to eat in a county 
or in a neighborhood. Right. And uh, it's all got the wood paddling. It's very cozy. It was meant to be a place where you settled in and spent the night. So you would start at the bar and then you'd sit down for, for a meal and maybe there'd be music and maybe they'd be dancing. It's, it's very old-fashioned. I went to a lot of them when I grew up. So I feel that they're becoming extinct. Yeah. So... I want to go to them as long as they exist. I love that. I think, you know, if you see them on the side of the road, especially in the upper Midwest, you should mm-hmm. definitely stop by. Um, it and, they're, seemed, and they're usually all family owned. Every family owned. You could definitely see like this c- cigar and cigarette, you know, smoke <laughs> painting on the, on, the, on the wall and ceiling. Absolutely. It seems like the brandy old fashioned, what is one of the drinks that you would find at a supper club? Does a supper club have an iconic beverage that you could it would be a brandy old-fashioned, and that, that has its own entry in the book. Probably if this book had not been written by a Wisconsinite, it would not have its own entry in the book, but I get to choose. So you <laughs> go into any supper club, and you can order a brandy old-fashioned with confidence. Yeah, with confidence. Uh, other than that, I would say you wait till the end of the meal, and then you can get ice cream drinks with confidence. It, like a grasshopper, probably. Yeah, grasshopper, brandy, Alexander, oh, pink squirrel, that kind of thing. Those are great. And, and man, it probably costs like six bucks for a brandy old-fashioned in some of these spots. Yeah, sometimes four fifty. Four fifty. I love when you do like the, the two the two quarters uh, for the drink price. Man, Robert, it's so cool talking to you, and and I really do want you to uh, come back, and we can focus on some other topics. And absolutely, um, It'd be my pleasure. On um, this is taste. We ask guests about the discerning taste. So to close this interview, here's a little rapid fire, fast and furious taste check. Are you ready? Yes, I am ready. The best breakfast. That would be a proper English breakfast, you know, with the mushrooms and the tomatoes and all that. I do. Is this just like the hang- hangover helper for you? It's just it's just so good. I discovered it in England, and I just I think they do breakfast right. Actually, why did I even do you get hangovers, or are you just a professional in that way too? Uh, I suppose I get hangovers from time to time. They're not very big. I know when to stop. You know when to stop. There you go. That's what a professional does. Mm-hmm. The best dessert? Uh, cherry pie. Okay, let's d- dig into that. Is it all about the cherry or is it about the, the crust with cherry? What, what do you love it so much? It's about pie. When I grew up, I never wanted cake. As a kid, I was a strange kid. I never wanted a birthday cake. I always wanted pie. And I just think every fruit pie is just wonderful. Good man. It's Midwest, baby. The best bread. Uh, that's a hard one. I was thinking about that. I, uh, does lard bread count as bread? It sure does. And as, as a 17-year resident of Carroll Gardens, I know you're going with this one. The lard bread at Mazzola. Excellent. The best bread in the world. We've asked this question to dozens, and we've never had a lard bread come up, and you are so right. That would be my answer. I think you are so <laughs> right. I don't so know if right. you could make a sandwich with it, but you just eat it. <laughs> How about this? Let me just – I had a friend who, who did this, lard bread with fondue. You ever oh. try that? No, but I'm going to. You should. Like, if you do a fondue party, go go get some lard bread. We do fondue a few times a winter. We're going to do it. Do it. Go get go get a couple loaves. Your guests will enjoy. Oh, that thank you. Little. All right, a couple more. Um, the essential bottle of booze to have on hand. Uh, for me, it's either rye or gin. It's really hard to choose, but I guess I choose gin so I can make martinis. Prefer gin. Yes. What what type of gin would you go for? Uh, I used to say Beefeater, but then they lowered the alcohol content. So lately I've been liking Heyman's. Okay. Yeah. I don't know that one. Where's that from? It's from England. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a classic London dry style. So like there's gins from France and gins from Ireland. And gins from everywhere Lots now. of domestic gins, obviously. Uh-huh. Let me just dig into that. Um, you just like, you like an, you, an English style? I like an English style, but there are American gins in that style. Uh, well, actually Ford's is made in London. Uh, but we've got Dorothy Parker gin here, right here in Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
They make one in Colorado at Woody Creek is a good one. Oh, out in uh, Kansas City, Rieger. Do you know Rieger's? Nope. Uh, they actually call it Midwestern dry gin, <laughs> but it tastes like London dry gin, and that is awesome. Difficult to find in the city, though. Yeah. Hard one here, but I'm going to ask it anyways. Your favorite stirred cocktail? I'm going to go with martini. I go back and forth uh, between Old Fashions and Sazeracs and Manhattans mm-hmm. and Negronis. Right now, it's martini. You wrote a great book about the martini. It was in tribute to. Oh, so. thank you. Yeah, whole book. Whole book. Whole book on that. Yep. Shout out to Lizzie Monroe, too, with the photos. Yes, Lizzie Monroe has done photos on three of my books. She's an old colleague and just wonderful photographer. Had she is great. Another hard one. Your favorite blended cocktail. By blended, do you mean shaken or do you mean blended? You know what? I was thinking like with a using like an on-off switch. Oh, like a, but okay. I, I, I with a, with skip, a blender. Yeah, okay. with a blender. I don't really use a blender much, but oh. I guess I'd go with daiquiri, that kind of daiquiri. Yeah, like that kind of daiquiri. Yeah, the kind that's just a mound of frozen ice. Yep, yep, you know it. Probably good in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then let's go shaken because I, I actually, what's your favorite shaken cocktail? Uh, Ramos Gin Fizz. Oh, my gosh. Can you get it anywhere outside New Orleans that's good? I think if you go to a place like PDT, you'll get a good one. They may be caught off guard, but they could probably do it in a pinch. Your favorite cookbook of all time? Yes. Um, I'm afraid this is going to be a very basic answer. I'm just going to say the cookbook that I use the most is Betty Crocker. Listen, um, respect the honesty. I've never turned a page in that book, and I want to know why. Tell me. What's so good about it? Well, uh, most of the time when I've just, I'm deciding to cook at home, I'm cooking one of the classic dishes. I don't necessarily want to cook a special dish from a special cookbook by one chef or one restaurant. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking for beef stroganoff. You know, where's a good recipe for beef stroganoff? I know Betty Crocker's going to have one. Love that. I mean, certainly I want to I want to check this out. So you have an addition like in your kitchen? Oh, I have three. <laughs> I have one like from the 50s, the I 60s, and the 70s because they change. Robert, do you have a favorite recent cookbook discovery? Yeah, there's a book that came out a few years ago by Tony Tipton Martin called Jubilee. Yeah. Every recipe I've made in that has been fantastic. It's a great book. It's a great reminder to pick up that book. It's wonderful. Favorite music to play in a restaurant? I I prefer uh, jazz or like the classic vocalist because I want to have a conversation in a restaurant and I want to hear myself think. Yeah, I love that. A couple more. Your favorite vegetable? Uh, Brussels sprouts. I liked them before they were trendy. I love it. Your respect. You weren't a kid who pushed them out on the side of the plate. You you went full in Brussels, Brussels sprouts. No, my mother made terrible Brussels sprouts. She yeah. boiled them. I learned yeah. how to make them myself when I moved to New York when I was in my 20s. And <laughs> uh, they're just fantastic. As an aside, and I didn't ask you this, and I want to know, and if you've gotten this far, thank you for sticking with us. It's a great conversation, Robert. How did you get into cocktail writing? Like, I, you, you've, you're, you're hinting at a career before cocktail writing. Yeah, I was a theater writer, and I was invited by accident to Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans in 2006. And I was looking for a change of pace because I was tired of writing about theater, and I'd always been interested in cocktails, and I realized I could get in on the ground floor of something that nobody was writing about yet. Interesting. Uh, and it was a new revival, and the people in it were exciting and fun and and I knew that they, they would make good copies, so I made the switch with the help of a few of my editors. I love that. So you were writing about theater. You were covering like Broadway, Off-Broadway, mm-hmm. English stuff. Absolutely. Uh, for what publications? Uh, New York Times, Village Voice, Time Out New York, places like that. Did you watch Mrs. Maisel? Oh, yeah. Did you love that theater, like Tony Shalhoub's theater critic kind of turn um, later seasons? 
I, I found it a bit improbable. Obviously. Uh, he, he was a professor at Columbia, and then suddenly he gets a job as a theater critic at the Village Voice. I mean, the Village Voice, in the even in the late 50s, late early 50s, 60s, yeah. was pretty significant. Um, and I don't know why they would hire him. And then suddenly he becomes famous right away. I know, I know. I always feel that um, the way journalists are treated in television and movie is always unrealistic, and you can tell they don't know what they're talking about. It's so I just thought it was funny that that he would actually confront some of the actors in like a bar. And that seemed really improbable too. that whole scene. Yes. Do you read Helen Shaw? Helen Shaw, the writer? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, she used to, her byline was in Time Out New York when my byline was in Time Out New York. And she's done very well for herself. Yeah, she's great. She's great. For, I, sorry, I, I just had to ask you that. I, I, I feel like... Writing about theater and arts obviously dovetails nicely with cocktails because of context. It's all theater. It is theater. Yes. It's theater. It's theater. It's tradition. It's ritual. It's it's all the same. Last question, your favorite sandwich. Oh, uh, okay, controversial, hot dog, and yes, it is a sandwich. We're going to leave it at that. <laughs> I, I love that, Robert. Robert Simonson, thank you so much for joining This Is Taste. Thank you. Liza, it's great to see you. What's going on? Not much. I want to hear about your trip to San Antonio. I love talking about Texas with you. This is the third of three. Uh, we had a travel Texas tour, and it was amazing. I got to go to Austin. I got to go to Houston. And the last stop was San Antonio. I was there for about 36 hours. Uh, and shouts to my friends at Travel Texas. They they gave me a car and let me do some, do some things. So I, I loved it. I want to hear all about it because I've still never been anywhere in Texas. So my list is just growing. Have you been taking notes during this journey of Texas? Well, luckily, this is a recorded podcast. So I've just been flagging the episodes. <laughs> flagging the episodes and listening. But I'll definitely link to some of the previous episodes in the show notes if you haven't uh, caught up on Austin and Houston. But let's talk about San Antonio. I'd never been there before. So I went there for, again, 36 hours. And, and really, it was a really surprising variety of cuisine there. Uh, because until I visited, I only knew San Antonio for a couple things. One was Tim Duncan and the San Antonio Spurs. Of course. One of our great dynasties in the National Basketball Association or the league or the association, whatever you want to call it. All three. The other was the Alamo slash the Riverwalk. And, you know, I did not actually place eyes on the Alamo, but I did enjoy a little walk from this cool little neighborhood called the Pearl. And I walked down the Riverwalk. And, you know, when I told some friends I was going to San Antonio, they were like, you know, the Riverwalk's a little, like, touristy and whatever. I actually really enjoyed my section of the Riverwalk. I walked on it for about a mile and a half. Really cool. Like, really, like, nice vibe down there. Yeah, tell me about it. Is it um, developed? Is it nature-y? It's really nature-y. And, you know, where I was near the Pearl, there was a lot of residential nearby and also some some bars. And you could hear, you know, DJs and music playing on it. You could, like, head up to some of their bars and restaurants. But really, I mean, it was hot. So it was, like, not, like, the best weather. But I had a really nice time. It was very, like, placid. It wasn't, like, cheesy. I know there's parts of the Riverwalk that aren't as great. But I liked it. And, again, the Pearl neighborhood, um, and I, I went to a couple of places up there it's a newer, like, destination in San Antonio, and I, I liked what I found there. It was cool. Yeah, tell me um, some of the highlights. Did you have a lot of tacos? You know what? I had a few tacos. We could start there because, you know, uh, San Antonio is known for uh, a specific type of taco called the puffy taco. Have you heard of it? I don't think so, but I, I love the sound of a puffy taco. I mean, it, first off, it's, like, really fun to eat because it crunches in a cool way. It's, like, a little more spongier than a hard shell taco. 
And it like literally is puffed up and it's made using fresh masa. Uh, and the dough is, uh, it's its like a field corn masa. And, and the dough, the way it's treated, there's some lime in there. And, you know, the way that lime, once it hits the oil, I believe, and I'm being very general here, it creates, instead of a flattening of the tortilla like you'd have with a corn tortilla standard one, it actually expands and puffs up. So it, it's really, like, oily and, and delicious. Okay, this might be a, a weird question, but do you mean lime as in citrus or lime as in, like, the mineral? No, the the mineral. I oh, believe. cool. Yeah, I think it's the mineral. Yeah, I think so. I I could be wrong. You know, this is not my expertise. The actual breaking down of the puffy taco, but I know puffy tacos are pretty big in Southern California. I've had them at Bar Ama, uh, which is a great restaurant, and I think that's located downtown. Do you yeah, know Bar- it yeah. is. Barama. And then there's Arturo's um, out in Whittier. That's a really good puffy taco out there. So, like, there's definitely some t- puffy tacos in, in Southern California. But from my uh, understanding, San Antonio is the home of the puffy taco. And the home of the puffy taco in San Antonio is Ray's Drive-In, which I really loved. Is it, like, a classic old-school drive-in? It is literally that. Opened in 1956. Um, it is a. It is like a... A bar in the back of it, there's lots of memorabilia from high school sports randomly, and it's really just like a total trip. It's like all these like really skinny dudes wearing Converse uh, and like such a vibey little space. But really, I love the way the tacos um, you just land on your plate and you've you've got like guisado, ground beef, you've got refried beans as your fillings. Mm. Uh, and, you know, you're putting all sorts of mostly red salsas and condiments in it. It's like a red centric you know, type of situation. Yeah, I love the sound of that. I feel like any place with the sports memorabilia just feels like um, they know who they're serving and it's a local community and that's fun. It really is that way. It's great. And it, it, it of course, is a very it's a very Mexican-American population in San Antonio and there's a lot of pride for uh, the traditions of Mexico. Uh, and I really, I found terrific food um, throughout San Antonio. And another place I went to was Con Huevos Tacos, which has been featured on that Netflix Tacos series. And they have a big banner there. That's why I know. And I just, I went there on Sunday morning at like 10 a.m. And it was amazing. The chef's name is Hugo Garcia. And it's an outdoor truck with like a patio seating. And really, these are some of the, the, the more, I would say, fresher and like lighter, to use like generalization, breakfast tacos I've ever had. Delicious stuff there. Yeah, based off the name, I was assuming it was going to be a breakfast tacos joint, but of that's course. good to know. Of course, and they name all of the tacos after uh, matriarchs within the family. I love the Irma, which was always a homemade flour tortilla. We're in Texas after all. Scrambled eggs, Mr. Salsa Verde, Oaxaca cheese, avocado, cilantro, and the Alida, which had uh, carne guisada and cheddar cheese and refried beans. It was a little heavier. But, man, I thought this place was terrific. That sounds great. I feel like the last one would be a great hangover breakfast taco. I think, you know, breakfast tacos can go in two directions, right? It's like perfect hangover food. I'd mentioned a place in in, uh, in Houston that I went to that has uh, potatoes in their, in their breakfast tacos. And, man, that's, like, perfect. But I also think of it like, man, I just, like, crushed, like, 5K. I just, like, went to CrossFit. And I want to eat the perfect post-workout food. Dude, the breakfast taco. <laughs> I love that. Listen up, Erewhon. <laughs> breakfast Yo, tacos. I mean, completely. And you've got aqua fresh, fresca and you've got, like, something cool, like a fruit uh, a, a fruit salad, you know, I think that that is a beautiful after workout, 
dish. I totally agree. I think that um, I mostly just meant that the refried beans specifically to oh, yeah. me are my good hangover food. Totally. But I think that there is a breakfast taco for every situation <laughs> and they should not be relegated just to the morning after. Yeah. Good call. Shall we continue our tour? Yeah. Tell me what else you did and ate. Well, I had some incredible jerk chicken there. and it's, Wow. Yeah, right, right. It was literally next to a gas station out outside of town. The place is called Jerk Shack. And the chef's name is Nicola Black, and she is incredible. Uh, she's a former—she uh, she was in the, served in the military for 10 years and followed her passion for cooking from Hawaii to San Antonio and worked, uh, you know, through her way at the Culinary Institute of America, which has a big campus in San Antonio. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, I didn't, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, the CIA has a really strong presence there. It's something I probably should have said at the top. Uh, you've got, obviously, CIA up in upstate New York. You've got the one in, in Napa, and then you've got— you know, you've got San Antonio, and and really a lot of the restaurants are are you know informed by this great school there. And so Jerk Shack, man, it was freaking, it was exactly what I wanted. But it wasn't just about the jerk chicken, which was like very spicy, and perfectly like it's what I wanted. I mean, how do you describe jerk? I'm I'm not great at. It. I've been thinking like, how do you like talk about jerk on a podcast? I don't know. That's an interesting question. I haven't had jerk chicken in a minute. I like getting it at the islands in like Prospect Heights. Dude, right by the museum? Yeah. I've been going there since 2004. Yeah, I, I love, love it place. there. I think like a good jerk chicken is kind of like that shreddy, like fall apart texture. Yeah. And it is deeply spiced. But to me, it's more of like a warm spice kind of situation. Yep. And like there is heat, but it's not like one of those spice rubs that is all about the heat. All about the powerful. It's well said. And I think this one was a little spicier than than that. But I think there's... I like it a little bit more mild myself. This one was good, though. Um, fried chicken, though, was my favorite dish there. I just had a really good experience with that fried chicken and the plantains on the side. Really, like, like pretty much half and half. I looked around the dining room. Half were doing jerk, half were doing fried. Um, go to San Antonio for jerk chicken. How about that? I love that. And the fried chicken. I think it's cool to have chicken two ways. Definitely. So the second, so the last, last kind of moment in our in this trip again, thirty six hours. It was a really like rapid and fast and furious trip. Was I got to hang out with uh, a San Antonio chef named Steve McHugh, and you know Steve is is cool. He's he's publishing a book with Ten Speed Press um, in the spring. The book is called Cured: Cooking with Ferments, Pickles, and Preserves. And you know Steve is a multiple James Beard Award nominee and and really a, a real. Uh, a spokesperson for this for Texas and Texas cuisine, but also for using fermentation and curing in a cool way. And I got to meet with him um, at his restaurant Land Race, which I thought was um, really nice and and had a lot of like you know it was more global. It was uh, in the Thompson Hotel and like kind of serving the hotel guests and, and and catering and all that. But his main restaurant is called Cured, and again that's in the Pearl District where I was and I walked around and and this is a restaurant. That has you walk in and there's a charcuterie case and he's doing all of his own charcuterie. And man, it was an impressive spot. It sounds like it. And I think it's cool to have someone that's doing curing and fermentation and like working with like plants and animals like in that same way. I feel like there's like so many different things you can do. Great call. There's a real connectivity between, yeah, curing vegetables like kimchi and doing pickled pearl onions and and thinking about like salumi and, and pork belly and all that stuff too. Yeah, it's all preservation. It's preservation. It's using everything in an animal or everything in a vegetable. And Steve's a super thoughtful guy and I can't wait to have him in in the spring when his book's out. He's going to be in New York and we're going to definitely do an episode and we'll, we'll make sure to link back to this. But yeah, San Antonio, 36 hours. I cannot recommend it enough. It's not far from, from Austin. It's a couple hour drive. 
maybe like an hour, actually hour and a half. And um, yeah, a great culinary scene there. Yeah, thanks for telling me about it. I have more things to add to the list. This is Taste is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening. 